Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Vadim Gladyshev, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Director of Redox Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. His research career has focused on how redox chemistry, trace elements, and nutrients influence reproduction, cancer, and, of special interest to us on this show, aging. He's become a ubiquitous presence in the biology of aging, appearing frequently at events at the cutting edge of the discipline, and most recently, he chaired the inaugural Gordon Research Conference on Systemic Processes, Omics Approaches, and Biomarkers in Aging. Vadim is one of the leaders in the field, and it's a pleasure to host him on the program. Vadim, thanks very much for being here. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me. It's great to be here. Before we discuss your lab's current work, I'd like to give our listeners a sense of where you come from intellectually. How did you get involved in aging? And perhaps to give the question a bit of structure, maybe you could tell us a story that starts with selenium and ends with longevity. When I started my lab, we've been working on selenium. And the question that we tried to address at that point, how can we explain the role of selenium in biology? Like if you go to pharmacy uh, or you take multivitamin mixtures, you see, find selenium there. Why is it there? Because there are some proteins which are dependent on that element. And so we studied these proteins and identified a full set of such proteins in humans, which there are 25 proteins. This was about 20 years ago. And then we found that these proteins are auxiliary reductases. They serve redux function. So we ended up in the redux biology area. So I still have this title, director of the Center for Redux Medicine for that reason. But then because of tight redox connection to aging, at least many think it's a tight connection. I've been exposed to the aging area. And then I realized that the questions that can be addressed are so fundamentally important, so critical. And it's just actually very hard to study anything else once you're exposed to this area. I've heard many other scholars say similar things, like about half of the field are people who are always wanted to work on aging and wanted to find their way. And others are people whose work led them to longevity. And then at that point, they just felt like, I have to work on this. I don't really have a choice. Maybe you could give us a little bit of an outline of what's going on in your group right now in relation to the biology of aging. Now, you're a very prolific group of people. I was looking at your reference lists on your lab website before the interview. So I understand that you can't pick your favorites. So maybe just give us a few highlights about what's going on with relation to aging and longevity in the Gladyshev lab. We always have a diverse program. In general, we try to address fundamental questions in the biology of aging, really trying to understand what is aging. How can we fundamentally adjust lifespan or, or target aging? And so for this reason, we have various experimental systems and computational systems in the lab to address these questions and also tend not to go to the very crowded areas to try to identify kind of new areas of potential growth in the field. But in terms of the specific projects, I guess various projects. So we work on cross-species analysis, like trying to understand how lifespan is shaped over evolutionary time scales and how could utilize this kind of what we learn from evolution in targeting aging and lifespan. Another group of projects related to interventions. So we develop what we call longevity signatures, which are patterns of gene expression, for example, across mammals or across known ways to extend lifespan across different cell types. And we leverage these signatures to identify new interventions. It could be pharmaceutical or it could be genetic or could be kind of lifestyle changes 
in order to extend lifespan. And so we primarily use mouse as a model. So we have, again, multiple candidates that we discovered and kind of actively pursuing. Some other projects are related to rejuvenation. We are really, really interested in this topic. First, from the addressing the question, what does it mean to be rejuvenated? Because this term is used very flexibly in the field. Sometimes you yeah, slow down the aging process and people would call it rejuvenate. Or sometimes we would need to reduce biological age. But if we reduce biological age or restore some function, are we rejuvenated? So all these questions, actually, there's no clear answer to this. And so we're trying to address that. And we have a multiple kind of model systems to do this. So we are also interested in a variety of model organisms. So we, of course, traditionally used mouse and human. But over the years, we've been working, we have many papers on the naked mole rat, for example, or we studied actually uh, many species of mammals. We sequenced the bat genome or the beaver genome and the marilet mole rat and so on. And then we've been working on yeast for about 20 years. I really like yeast as a model organism to study aging because it is able to address fundamental questions in the field. And currently we have a project on the frogs, for example. Anyway, so there's many kind of model systems that are able to help us to address some of the key questions in the field. Fantastic. So I want to drill down on something that you touched on in that answer. One topic that you think about a lot and have written about a lot and talked about a lot is quantification of the aging process, measurement of the aging process as it occurs. Can you help us understand what that means in practice and why it's important to be able to do that? This is what I call clock revolutions. Some people call it this way because going back 10 years or so, it was not possible to quantify the aging process. Of course, some people try to use telomeres or oxidative damage or some other forms of age-related changes to quantify, but none of them is just accurate enough. And when Steve Corvus developed his first clock and I read his paper, I was really, I was just really impressed. I could see that it's a game changer for the field. So we, we joined the efforts and developed various clocks in the mouse, epigenetic clocks initially, but we're developing all kinds of different clocks, trying to understand what exactly these clocks measure. So for the first time, we are able to kind of follow quantitatively the aging trajectory and try to understand how does the aging happens, whether it happens differently in different organs, differently in different cells, when it begins, when it ends. What does it mean if we could potentially reverse it, for example, by some rejuvenation approaches? So all these questions as possible now are to address these clocks. And so I think it's just a, a major, major development in the field. So one of the ways in which quantifying aging is important is we can't know the efficacy of interventions in aging if we can't measure the process itself. Am I getting that right? Yes. So what are some of the ways that the Gladyshev Lab is pursuing that problem of measuring and quantifying aging? First, we try to understand the nature of the clocks because the majority of current clocks, they quantify everything that happens with age. What I mean by this is that, let's say damage happens. I'm thinking about aging in terms of damage typically. So damage happens, and this can be quantified by clocks. But then there are other changes happening that during aging, which, which are essentially neutral, but they also would be part of the clocks. On top of this, there are some changes which are in response to all of these damaging and neutral changes. Many of these changes will be protective, or we sometimes call them yeah. adaptive as well. And so they also will be part of the clock. Then, for example, this could be good in terms of quantifying progression from young to old. But once we apply this to interventions or clocks to test interventions and also apply clocks to quantify rejuvenation, suddenly we are not sure which clocks can be used. 
Because some of the clocks that maybe could report interventions, maybe we capture these protective adaptive changes. And when we quantify changes in biological age by these clocks, in reality, maybe we're just removing protective systems. The same goes for rejuvenation. So we don't really know which subset of the clocks are the best in quantifying rejuvenation. And as far as I know, these kind of fundamental questions have not really been addressed. Of course, there are several labs that are trying to understand and build clocks which really work in capturing the essence of the aging process. I don't think such clocks have been developed. This is such a critical question when it comes to clocks. And just to summarize what you've said and potentially simplify, certainly, hopefully not oversimplify, there are many changes that can be measured as an organism moves from young to old. So this might be useful for measuring the progress of normal aging, but when you're intervening in aging, you don't want to reverse all of those changes because some of those changes are evidence of the body's protective responses in action. I want to make sure that I get that right. Do I have it more or less accurate? Yes, it's accurate. I sometimes give an even more extreme kind of case. Let's say we build a clock by quantifying just adaptive changes. For example, the visits to doctor's office, which increases age, the use of hearing aid or some kind of walking tools or the glasses. And actually, we could build a clock, aging clock, and then we fire all the doctors. And based on these clocks, we would be rejuvenated. So you're saying if you don't make the measurement that you didn't get older. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we really need to understand what we are measuring and how we are measuring. The clocks are great. So I'm a big fan of clocks, but it's just we need to understand and build even better clocks in order not just quantify progression through aging, but for testing interventions and reporting rejuvenation. That's such a clear answer, and I really appreciate it. And you've defined the problem space really clearly. I wonder if you can tell us about specific ways in which you're attempting to methodologically alter or elaborate on existing clocks or other ways in which you're attempting to address this problem specifically in terms of experimental method? This work in progress, so it's really, I cannot comment in detail because it's just not ready kind of for public release. And also it's not completed work, but we're trying, it's a combination of experimental and computational approaches and the use of a variety of model systems. Again, so it might not work, we don't know. And I know that other labs are trying kind of to address this also. I understand the impulse not to talk about unpublished work or work that's still too preliminary, but I did get the sense that maybe you're, you're using comparative methods, like comparisons between species to help train or even evaluate how we use these clocks. If you use a variety of approaches, this includes comparison across species, comparison across models of rejuvenation, but also trying to get into the essence of aging. That's really the key. In fact, I would say probably the most important question in the field to me is the nature of aging. What is really surprising to me is that researchers are really not trying to address it. I mean, of course, everybody who studies aging, they think they know the answer. And if you ask most people, say, are you sure that that's what aging is? And they say, yes, actually, they think they kind of solved the puzzle. But if you uh, try to compare, you realize that the answers are different. Some people think about aging, let's say, as the increased chance of dying. And you talk to all of these demographers, evolutionary biologists, and if they find that the chance of dying does not increase with age, like in the neck red, or decreases with age, in the case of turtles, they say these animals do not age, which like for me as a trained as a biochemist just makes no sense because they have neurons, they have cardiomyocytes, they have these non-renewable cells, which 
metabolically active, they accumulate damage. We, we know that they accumulate damage. We see mutations appearing, post-translational modifications. We see epigenetic changes. At the molecular level, they seem to age. But then, you know, because they don't increase mortality with age, the interpretation of some people that they do not age. But anyway, this is one model. Some other people think about aging as a continuation of development, like trajectory set during development, which is essentially a program and just kind of continues purpose, purposelessly. Uh, later, some other people think about functional decline. This, I would say probably the majority of, uh, not the majority, but many people think about aging as a functional decline. Some people think about fitness and some people think about biological age. Some people think about uh, aging related changes or damage accumulation. All of these diff completely different models. And there's not much effort to really reconcile these differences and try to really define what aging is, what are we actually studying. Uh, this is really very strange to me. And we are trying to address that, these questions. So it sounds like you do have some faith that there will be a grand unified theory of aging at some point. The point is not even about the theory. We don't need specific words. We just maybe just to think about the essence of aging. For example, if we consider humans after the age of 40, all of these features that I described, they all apply. Mortality increases, function decreases, fitness decreases, damage accumulates, biological age increases, and so on. But they are not the same. And so if we manipulate the aging process, let's say by intervention, which of these factors or features need to be targeted? So that's why we are more and more actually studying things in development where it is easier to distinguish these features distinguish what is important. Is it the functional changes or, for example, damage accumulation? Over the last few years, one term that comes up in any discussion of what aging is, is the hallmarks of aging framework that was established in the review from a few years ago. What's your feeling about the utility of that perspective on aging? On one hand, it is useful because it kind of describes the universality of the aging process. But at the same time, I'm actually not a big fan of hallmarks of aging in some way, they've been misleading. Because I think a key feature for me is systemic, that aging is a systemic process, it's a system. So we have an entire organism, or maybe within the organism, tissue or some cell that moves according to a certain trajectory, and the entire system moves. It's not a particular gene, a particular metabolite, or particular process, or compartment. It's not. It's not mitochondria, not DNA damage, not proteostasis, not autophagy. It's the whole thing. That's transitions. And that's why it's so difficult to actually describe it. How could we even address this transition of the whole system? So that's why I think these biomarkers are useful because this epigenetic aging clocks with all the imperfect nature and kind of unclear composition, they are able to capture much better this kind of systems nature of the aging process. And that's why they are so useful. So returning to the idea of biomarkers and clocks, which we were discussing earlier, I want to shift gears a little bit, but stay with the idea of quantifying aging. On this show, we try to walk the line between academic research and the biotech industry. One of our main interests is the application of foundational knowledge in biogerontology to the development of therapeutics that can ultimately be used to increase longevity. Broadly speaking, how could these kinds of quantification approaches, measurement approaches, in your opinion, how could they be used to advance the clinical program of treating disease by targeting measurements or markers of aging? Well, are you talking about a particular disease? We're developing these methods for 
measuring aging, for quantifying aging, and potentially for identifying which of the changes that are associated with aging are the most causative and which are protective that we wouldn't actually want to reverse. So you have some aging clock, say, and it measures the rate of biological aging. And you have some confidence that if the clock says your age goes up, that you have aged. And if the clock says your age has gone down, that you've been rejuvenated or restored in some way. Could these tools be used in clinical trials for diseases of aging, specific diseases of aging, first of all, and maybe down the road for clinical interventions against the aging process itself? Yes, they can be used. Although, again, there is no agreement in the field which specific clocks and which clocks are better to, to capture this. Personally, for me, it's less interesting to target a particular disease. I would like to target the aging process itself so that all of the diseases are kind of delayed, the onset of this disease is delayed. But I know, like in the, especially in the biotech industry, it's a little bit easier, I guess, to target a set of particular diseases. This becomes really, in a way, analogous to traditional medicine, because that's how exactly the medicine is organized. That are, you know, it's around, organized around diseases. And so we could target aging features of a particular disease and thereby targeting disease. It's a valid approach. It's a very good approach, actually. But it's just a little bit more traditional. And as an academic researcher, I'm interested in a bigger question. I am really interested in targeting the aging process itself, not any particular disease. Fair enough. I mean, at BioAge, I think we'd love to be able to do that too. But the, the path that we've taken, given the current regulatory framework, is to identify drugs that slow some aspect of the aging process or reverse some aspect of the aging process, but then to pursue clinical indications that are defined by particular diseases simply because it is possible within the existing legal and regulatory frameworks to get those drugs to market that way. But I agree that it would be of great interest to be able to simply put a drug into human beings and see whether or not it slowed the aging process. And as you say, once we define what the aging process is, which are the best clocks and other kinds of biomarkers to use. I do appreciate your perspective. I wish it were easier to trial drugs whose explicit target was aging. Along those lines, in terms of overcoming regulatory barriers to testing drugs against the aging process per se, what do you think of approaches like near Barzilai's TAME trial for metformin, where the endpoint is the rate of onset of diseases of aging that are mechanistically independent from each other? Yeah, I like this approach. I think it's a step in the right direction. And of course, it's still not aging itself. I mean, it's just it's still age-related diseases, but it's still a good step forward because we are indirectly actually trying to slow down aging here. I mean, I think it's a good way to operationalize aging and say, okay, maybe it's not aging itself, but if you slow the rate of onset of mechanistically independent diseases of aging, the easiest interpretation is that you're targeting whatever the kind of hidden variable on the inside is that is biological age. I mean, in the same way that if you're in a biochemistry lab and you're studying some protein, ultimately what you're looking at is bands on a gel, right? You're not looking at the protein, but you believe the thing you're looking at is a proxy or marker for the thing that you're studying. I think it's a pretty cool approach. And certainly one of the hopes is that while they're running these studies, and it sounds like Nier finally got some money to run these trials at the scale that he wants to, one of the things that they're going to do is collect a lot of biological data that can be used to inform biomarkers and the development of biomarkers that could ultimately be used to evaluate efficacy of other kinds of interventions down the road. So it's a really exciting prospect. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a really nice project, and I'm glad that he was so persistent and finally will be able to do it. 
Having said that, I would still say that if we, in an ideal case, we would need to target aging, not age-related diseases, because there could be situation when we could slow down or even reverse the aging process, partially reverse, but the incidence of diseases would not be affected, of these diseases would not be affected. And there could still be success in terms of aging, but not in terms of diseases. We talked a little bit before about how there's not a consensus about what aging is, but it sounds like in your view, it is actually possible to uncouple some true aging from the increased incidence of morbidity and mortality related to disease as we get older. Yes, yes. We don't know exactly how to do it. I don't know if anybody knows, but yes, I mean, the clinical trial, an ideal clinical trial for me is a trial that targets aging, even if mortality does not change, even if diseases do not change. Although, of course, most likely they will change, but even if they don't, we would be targeting aging. So just to play devil's advocate for a second, why would you want to target aging if you still got sick and died at the same rate? Again, so I'm a, an academic researcher. I'm driven to this field because of the importance of the aging process. So I'd like to interfere, understand what is the nature of aging and how the best interfere with the aging process. My target is aging, aging, not diseases. And I can imagine a situation when aging would be decoupled from diseases. Hopefully not. And you know, if we identify the best way to target aging, maybe in the future we could, I don't know, bring this closer to diseases and mortality. But to me, diseases and mortality are separate from each. They are consequence of consequence of aging, but not aging itself. I see. So it's sort of an interesting intellectual and foundational question to ask. Is there some meaningful definition of aging? and a thing that can be intervened in that is sort of causally uncoupled from these diseases of late life that we now think of as associated with aging. Just for example, turtles, they decrease mortality with age. Yeah, love turtles. You know, we haven't done epigenetic clocks or any other clocks, but my prediction would be that based on epigenetic clocks, we could show that they do age even if their chance of dying decreases with age. Then the question would be, can we interfere? Can we make them younger? You see, in order to make them younger, we need to understand if they become older. And based on the clocks, they presumably would become older. And so if we would reverse it, they would become younger. But you see, mortality here is completely decoupled because mortality is an integrative feature of not just the aging process, but interaction with the environment. It's an interesting corollary, and I'm starting to see and understand your argument a little bit better. Earlier, you said there are these organisms that the risk of mortality is non-increasing with chronological age, which does sort of imply that mortality and aging are uncoupled because you also said it is obvious that turtles do age by other metrics. If you strip away the mortality and morbidity stuff, you can tell the difference just visually or through anatomical examination or cellular examination between an old turtle and a young turtle. So there is some reason to believe that the aging process, some platonic aging process is distinct from the onset of disease, morbidity, and mortality. So I think I understand you a little bit better now. Thank you for talking that through with me. I want to switch gears again and drill down on this idea of systems, processes, and aging. So as should be clear to our listeners so far, you're a major proponent of the value of systemic processes, omics approaches, and biomarkers in aging. And indeed, you just organized and chaired a conference with that exact name. This was one of the prestigious Gordon Research Conferences, and GRC had never held a conference on this topic before. So why was 
2022 the right time to have a conference on that topic? Well, actually, I wanted to have it in earlier. In, in fact, it was scheduled for 2020, <laughs> but because of COVID, it got delayed. Why was 2020 the right time then? Well, I think because of the development of the field, there is already an existing Gordon Research Conference called Biology of Aging, which is a great conference. But I think what we've seen in the field is the really exponential increase in quantitative approaches, omics approaches, clocks, rejuvenation, this cross-species comparisons. And so I wanted to organize a conference around this new theme. So it's um, just because the researchers focusing on these topics, they're kind of scattered around aging conferences. But I thought it would be great to have a, a platform for like a thorough discussion of the entire field. This way, I was able to bring nearly everybody who recently contributed to, for example, rejuvenation. They all spoke in the same session. Also, there was a comparative biology session. There was a clock session, biomarker session. So we had an opportunity to thoroughly discuss all of these issues. One really notable feature of the conference is that longevity biotech was particularly well represented. And some of the speakers included Martin Borkjansen of Gordian, Alex Javronkov of In Silico Medicine, both of whom have appeared on this show, Kristen Fortney, the CEO of BioAgent and my boss, as well as scientists from Calico and Altos and others. And I think as recently as five or six years ago, this would have been unusual, but now it's really the contrary. It's hard to have a good conference with all the leaders in the field unless Longevity Biotech has multiple seats at the table. Do you agree? And if so, what do you think is responsible for that? I fully agree. Well, but the longevity industry, I guess, is slightly different, somewhat different from other industries, biotech industries, because there's a lot of academic research that's going on. The people who presented at the conference, be it BioAge or Retro, or, you know, Calico, Altos Labs and so on, TurnBio, I mean, there have been quite a few companies that this are all academic researchers, actually. Sometimes they have both academic appointment and work at a company, or sometimes just a recent academic researchers, or sometimes just a, almost like an academic research is being done at a company. So I think in our field, this distinction between biotech and academic research is kind of blurred. I feel it's, it's a very good feature of the field. I totally agree. So is the Systems Bio of Aging Conference going to be a regular occurrence on the GRC calendar? We hope so. The next conference is scheduled two years from now. It will be chaired by Steve Horvath. Excellent. And we elect a vice chair who will be Sarah Hogg. Great. She will be a vice chair next time and then will be chair of the 2026 conference. And hopefully it will continue every two years. That's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. So just before your conference, before your GRC, you were in San Francisco for an event hosted by the Foresight Institute. And this was a weekend devoted to the longevity tech tree, which is an exercise in projecting the core technologies and other improvements that need to build on each other to achieve a meaningful increase in healthy human lifespan. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? It, it was my first experience actually attending <laughs> this weekend uh, workshop. Uh, it was a lot of fun because various speakers were invited to present and kind of a major unsolved problem in the field. And then people would vote and organize groups, uh, discussion groups, and kind of more thoroughly discuss this topic and present again to the entire group. So I think it was an opportunity to really force people to think what are the major unsolved problems? What is the best way to move forward? Because, you know, many researchers, it's easy, I guess, in the field to be stuck to a particular topic. If you study mitochondria and you already have an established track record, you always apply to study mitochondria and then, you know, it kind of goes on and on. But just being without any bias and just listening what people think, okay, what is the main problem? 
And apparently they were different. People who consider different main problems and just argue and defend them. I think it was a very good exercise. Based on an after event at a bar on Market Street that you and I both attended, the crowd seemed really diverse, which in the best case could lead to some out-of-the-box thinking, which you just implied was indeed the case. Can you tell us some of the more interesting ideas that you heard there? Well, there have been many ideas. There was, uh, for example, interesting idea about cryonics or you know biomarkers or causal inferences. I myself argued about the nature of aging. I said, we have to stop to be, I call them aging alchemists, because, you know, we like alchemists in the middle centuries, we would try to make gold from some other metals, you know, trying here and there, but without addressing the essence, we need the analog of the periodic table, basically, which is like the framework for, for the understanding, or at least some element of consensus about the nature of aging. Well, maybe just not single consensus, but at least two or three around which we could organize and design experiments and really ask questions, like really fundamental questions. Because what is really striking, we talk about completely different things. You know, we have we are all colleagues, we meet at conferences and we listen to each other's talks and we assume that we are talking about the same thing. But once you ask a question, what is aging? Suddenly we realize we are not. And actually the most striking case for me was at the Warden Conference where we gave a, a survey. We asked people to answer really these questions. What is aging? When does aging begin? What causes aging? What is rejuvenation? Is aging a disease? And, and questions like this, maybe 10 questions or so. And there's no agreement on any question. Very striking. When we ask people to define the aging, I was able to organize this maybe in 10 different themes, <laughs> broad themes, in terms of the, how people think about the aging process. It's really striking. And somehow it's just not people not discussing and not trying to address it. So it's clear, and you've spoken with great passion here about the importance of defining aging, really knowing what we're talking about as we move forward into attempts to understand and intervene in this process. So we know that that is a priority for you. I want to ask kind of a follow-up related question as we close the interview. Zooming out to the big picture, but keeping with the theme of technology tree in the sense that some achievements have to come first in order to enable others. What do you think, beyond the definition of aging itself, are the most important near-term goals in the field of aging and longevity? For me, is a big priority is rejuvenation, because now we have a, a few examples of the rejuvenation process. One is the Yamanaka, kind of famous Yamanaka approach, converting uh, somatic cells to embryonic cells, induced potent stem cells. Another example is actually we published last year we found that during early development, there's a process of rejuvenation, and we know very little about this process. So we're really trying to understand it. There are some other examples. For example, it's clear that parabiosis treatment also rejuvenates organs. We have several such examples, and maybe it may be possible to find common features. They are common features and, and really try to define what does it mean to be rejuvenated? How can we quantify this? and whether any approaches actually could be utilized. Of course, there is a, a, a lot of initiatives at Calico Altus Labs and you know, other companies, you know, the so-called partial reprogramming. To me, it's an important approach, but it's only one. And we actually don't know if it's the best one or not, but clearly it's a promising direction for sure. But I think we should explore other directions as well in this space. There is so much to do, and it's such an exciting time to be in the field. I really can't wait to see what's going to happen. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Vadim Gladyshev, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page, 
You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.